0: Welcome to the Expat Empire podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that we're offering a free consulting call to anyone interested in moving abroad. Whether you're thinking about retiring somewhere warm, starting an international career, or becoming a digital nomad, we're ready to help you think through the next steps in your journey. Send us a message at expatempire.com to schedule your call today. With that said, let's start the conversation. Hey Al, thanks so much for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And we had you on our podcast a few months ago and we really really enjoyed the conversation. So I'm looking forward to it. Really am.
0: Yeah, I am too. And it's great to reconnect. Uh, I had a great conversation with you there and I always wanted to dive more into your background and situation. It's super interesting. You've gone all over the world and you've you've gotten a digital nomad visa. You've had some expat experiences. So you really kind of embody the idea behind this show. And I'm excited to share your story with our listeners.
1: Cool. Yeah, I think we're, uh, we tick all the boxes of all those things. So yeah, cool. Crack on.
0: Perfect. Uh, In that case, if you could just give us a bit of a sense of your background, so where around the world that you've lived so far, and of course, where you're originally from, and where you're living today, then I think that would help set up our discussion.
1: Cool. Okay. Well, uh, originally from the UK, uh, from near Manchester, although actually I'm I'm not, I was born near London, but lived near Manchester, Uh, met my wife and we both enjoyed a bit of travel and then just decided in 2012 that we were going to go and live in Spain just because, We were relatively young and both our jobs were able to be, we were able to move them around. So that's what we decided to do. So uh, we started off in Spain, 2013. Um, We went out in May and uh, we were there for about three years. And what's funny is that we probably still would be there. Um, I'll talk more about that uh, about where we were, if it's interesting. But pretty much probably, still we still would be there. Um, had something not happened along the way, which nudged us into the uh, nomad life. Um, and the last year, we've probably been we're probably classed as expats now because we're on a residency visa for twelve months in Croatia, which is where I'm talking to you from right now.
0: Amazing. Yeah, lots of stuff in there, uh, as, as uh, I had mentioned and alluded to. So excited to jump into it. But it'd be good to get a sense for why was it uh, that you decided to originally make that move to Spain back in, I think you said, 2013? What was it you know that uh, was going through your head? And what was the process of figuring out, of course, maybe leaving your home country, but more importantly, then where to go to next?
1: Yeah, I think what we've always said is that we didn't hate our life in Manchester. We loved our life in Manchester. It just felt that there was a little bit more available to us. Um, we both, well, both my wife and I, of course, both my wife and I got married. We got married together abroad in the previous year in Spain. Um, and it was almost like a little tester to see what, did we like it? We were there for about four weeks around the wedding. Did we like it? And of course we did. There wasn't really one sort of, I wish there was said there was an inciting event, but there wasn't really. We just decided... Nope, that's enough. We, we've we had a great life in Manchester, but it's time for a new chapter in our lives. So we chose a place. Uh, we were originally going to go live in Gibraltar, uh, mainly because they speak English. And so um, although I have my own business and I have a property company as well, so I have a little bit of income coming in without having to necessarily rely on an employer, uh, Liam was still working for an employer. So she was looking for someone who she could potentially work with. And of course, our Spanish um, was... <laughs> very, very small and poquito before we first went to Spain. And so we could, we certainly weren't able to go and get jobs in, you know, in Spanish speaking companies. So that's why we decided on Gibraltar. It turns out after being there that actually Gibraltar is very small, it's very expensive, a one bed apartment will probably cost you about a thousand at that time, about a thousand euros a month. Uh, whereas if you just went up the coast a little bit, we went to a place called Puerta de la Casa, um, which is very close to Estepona, a lot of people have heard of Estepona, maybe about 20, 30 kilometres east or south of Malaga. Um, and for 400 euros, I think actually by the time it was 400 euros, which at the time was about 320 pounds. Uh, we had like a three bedroom apartment uh, with a pool <laughs> and um, looked out over the sea and it was just brilliant. Now we compared that to the UK and we were paying about 600 pounds for a one bed, 400 square apartment in the centre mm-hmm. of town in Manchester. We just looked, it was like, at the time, the, the euro was 1.4 to the pound. God, those were the days. Um, and so we actually ended up, I think it was it was so much cheaper to live. It was probably half as cheap to live in Malaga or near Malaga in Spain as it was to live in Manchester. And so we were like, well, let's try it. And worst case scenario, it's two and a half day drive back to the UK. So if it all goes wrong... <laughs> We just get in the car so that's what we did so it was um we sold everything around about sort of january february time moved in with our parents for a f- couple of weeks and then we, at the time we had a citron c3 which is a tiny little sort of four-door car um and we packed everything including our uh, our 50 kilo rottweiler um who came with us who, pa- who sat on top of two suitcases and just drove for three days down to uh down to malaga to our new life and uh and that's how we kicked off in malaga
0: Yeah, that sounds incredible. And uh, it sounds like, of course, uh, very different from your home country, but you gave it that first chance uh, in terms of the wedding and and got that experience there and then adjusted accordingly. So what I'm curious about then is what did you end up doing as far as as your businesses and careers? Naturally, it sounds like you were able to manage yours remotely to some extent, um, and maybe you had to make some adjustments there. But how about your wife?
1: That's one of the key questions I think that we always get is people saying, how do you do this? Now, it's interesting because we've both come at it from different angles. Um, I've always, not always, but for the last 10, 15 years, been a marketing consultant. That's how I built up my property company by doing marketing with my business partner who was Greater properties. So we built a load of properties um, in a short period of time, which is great. Now, by no means is that am I a millionaire. It covers my outgoings for the month, but it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not, we're not sitting on a beach drinking pina coladas. But what was interesting was from Leanne's point of view, she came from, very much employed she was working for the department of working pensions in um in the uk like a governmental agency so she couldn't very well just say right i'm off so she spoke to her boss and she basically was really open and said look this is what we're planning on doing we're planning on my what husband and i are planning on going here so here's my notice and a couple of days later her boss came back to her and said how much of this could you do abroad remotely and I mean we're talking 2013 so this is almost 9 years ago well mm. before the wfh movement and uh, and she said i reckon i could probably do about 85% remotely and, she, and he said well it's going to be cheaper for you to fly from from malaga to manchester than it is for you to get a train from manchester to london so mm. just mm. let's try it so basically she was like okay so she went across and she worked for about 3 weeks in malaga in the sun at our house and then for a week um a month she'd drive, she'd fly back to the uk hire a car, which is all paid for by the company, and go and do her work down there and um I and mean, that went on for almost two years, i think, and of course, there are some downsides, and I don't want anyone thinking oh she was lucky because she wasn't lucky. she put her hand of notice in she was prepared to walk away. We are lucky in, in so much as the you know the boss said. Yes, you can do it. But <laughs> right. at the same time, there were some, there are always some difficulties because if you're away from your partner for a week, a month, you know, that's not great. Uh, she was on her own in the UK, eating mm. at restaurants in, on her own in the UK, which obviously isn't great. Um, and she kind of felt a little bit like she got a foot in both camps, if that makes any sense. But I think it is quite interesting to look at people who say, I, I could never do this. You go, well, have you actually asked whoever you work for? Can you just—is there a way in which you can try it? I mean, there's a great mm. book called The Four Hour Work Week. Which I'm sure you've mm-hmm. read of Tim Ferriss, and right. he talks about a way to exit out of your job. I'm not going to go over that because it's his work and his strategy, but it's a great strategy to basically exit over over a period of six months and then just just knob off over over broad or something. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of the, that's the way that that came about with the work.
0: Nice, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's amazing. I mean, it's uh, as you said, it's essentially taking that. Framework or or that step by step plan that uh, you can find in in those books like Tim Ferriss's uh, Four Hour Work Week and making it actually happen. So it's amazing to hear that she was able to do that. And I guess it's important to note as well that you know back in 2013, then you had an opportunity just to move in terms of you know immigration and visas and things like that, just as part of being uh, you know. of the eu ultimately with your british passport so i think that'll probably come into play a little bit uh later as we talk about how things have evolved for you but it must have just been so empowering just to be able to put everything in the car you know manage it with your careers as well and businesses and just to start that new life in such a you know beautiful place that you had been i guess dreaming about and also of course living in a much lower cost of living so i think it's super uh exciting and inspiring to hear those stories
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and, and our own podcast is all about the honest guide to living and working abroad. And it is exactly that. We tell everyone, look, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. There are a lot of difficulties, which I'm sure we'll get into later on in the call. But the fact is that no one's going to knock on your door and say, I've got an apartment for you. We found in Spain, do you fancy coming and living there? And by the way, we'll give you all the money you need to, you have to, you know, you have to take some risks. You have to get your big boy pants, your big girl pants on, and you have to take these risks and go and do it. And, I mean, as long as you're not cutting all ties or disappearing to a remote kind of Pacific island where you can't get back, almost anything's reversible, isn't it?
0: Yes. (laughs) Well said, and I think people forget that. It's often what I say is, well, worst case scenario, you can head back to your home country. I mean, some people obviously don't want to do that. It's maybe not the preferred route or uh, maybe... You know, in, in difficult situations, that's that's not an option either. But for most folks, it's it's not that bad to sort of unwind the situation. At least you had some experience, and maybe you can try again and perhaps find a country that better fits your needs. So, uh, to that end, I'm curious how those first couple months, if if even first year, was there in Spain. Of course, you have your wife who's going back and forth uh, for the job. You have trying to run your businesses from there. It sounds like you have this great setup, but what were some of the challenges that you might've faced and, and especially maybe in a more Spanish-speaking environment at that time?
1: It's a great question. Um, we always talk about the sort of three cornerstones of a happy expat life, which is your accommodation or your or where you live. Um, it's how you work or earn money. Um, and then it's how you socialize or how you make friends. And I think that in most cases, it's more of a logistical thing to sort out where you live. And I'll talk about that in a second, because specifically, we did choose a sort of a start, an expat starter uh, place, which I'll talk about in a second. In terms of getting your, working out how to, you know, how you earn, hopefully you're sorting that out before you're going, because that's going to add extra pressure if you don't know how to make money. So it leaves the biggest challenge, which I think we've discussed before, is finding friends and having Mm -hmm. a social circle. And what happens is that you end up being everything to your partner, So you've got to be your drinking buddy. You've got to be the the person who you go exercise with. You've got to be the person who, you know, you spend 24 hours a day with. And they also happen to be your partner as well. And that puts an enormous strain on a relationship. I think it's, I think you can go one or two ways. And we were lucky in that we went the way that now, we're we'll quite happily spending entire seven days just mm-hmm. seeing each other, nobody else, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely fine. But there's certain things you have to put in place. You you should we you, yeah, we call it quiet time, where one of us will go into a different room, for maybe two or three hours. Uh, we talk about independent stories. Uh, sorry, story sounds very stupid, but like TV. <laughs> we call it our stories after after the woman in Scrubs, learning Scrubs, as so we call it our stories. So you need independent stories. So you need to you know let's go and sit. You go and watch Breaking Bad. She goes and watch RuPaul <laughs> Drag Queen. Um, and never the twain shall meet if that. Makes right. sense. Um, so, I think there's lots of things you put in place and lots of things that we learned. Um, however, in terms of the social aspect, we we moved to a place called Puerto de la Dequesa. Puerto de, la de, de que, that's not easy for me to say after <laughs> eight years of being away. And it's very expatty. Uh, there's not that many Spanish people there. So, you go into the bars along the port, and English is not only widely spoken, but it's natively spoken by probably about 60% of the people sitting there, um, a little bit like a mini Marbella. Uh, Now, the advantage of that is that you kind of have this soft, this, this sort of soft opening, this, this ability to move into a different culture, knowing that even though your Spanish isn't great, you don't have to use it because you've got this fallback of English. So that was the good part of it. And it allowed us to learn a bit of Spanish, like quietly over the, over a period of time. The bad side of it is that it's not really an authentic feeling Mm. of Spain. So about uh, two years after living in that area, we moved into rural Malaga. So it was about 40 kilometers in the mountains outside Malaga, um, where we we were maybe one of six expat families Mm. in the the village. Um, And that was much, much harder. But what was interesting is that I thought that the locals wouldn't be interested in talking to us because we don't speak native Spanish, but we could speak enough to talk to them. And most people are interested in you. And then most people are like, I will happily sit there and talk and have a beer with you or something. Uh, Even with your sort of ridiculous GCSE Spanish, you can still get by. So although I say that the social aspect is one of the more difficult aspects, I think if you just go out there, work at it, make an idiot of yourself, pronounce things wrong. You know, I talked about making a deal with someone and apparently that was colloquial for for a child sex ring. So basically I suggested (laughs) that I made a, you know, and it's stuff like that. You you just sort of... (laughs) you just learn that you're gonna you're gonna get it wrong a lot more than you're gonna get it right but it really is important to get yourself out there and start to make friends because you can't live abroad and not speak to people who live there
0: right absolutely and i can imagine that that there was quite a stark contrast right as you're saying between the the first place that you lived and the second place up in the mountains so how did you come uh, upon making that decision because I can imagine that at first, you know, it's probably very comfortable to be around these different expats and build uh, relationships and build a community amongst those people with similar backgrounds to yourself. But then to decide to go from that straight into, into a situation where you're really kind of more uncomfortable, um, its maybe not as easy, but uh, ultimately more satisfying. I think it's an interesting choice. I've I've heard of people going maybe even the opposite direction. They try to throw themselves first into the deep end and going into the more I don't know, more local environments, and then ultimately maybe trying to find places where they're able to connect with people with similar backgrounds. Because I think even though you can maybe learn something from, of course, the trying to speak the language and being able to understand someone's different culture, there, there are those uh, cultural differences as well that I would imagine you encountered more in the second location. So how, how would you kind of think about that and also decide which of those cities to move to at those different times?
1: Well, I kind of alluded to an event which made us turn us into nomads. And that was in our second house, not the one in the countryside that was still in this sort of this safety, (laughs) this uh, playgroup area of Spain, where uh, we went to pay our rent one day in in May. Um, and the letter came said, I'm sorry, he's sold the house. It was like, well, when do we leave? He says, well, he wants you out tomorrow. We were a bit <laughs> like, well, this is, <laughs> this, this isn't good. Um, um, and the other, and, um, the other thing is if anyone's ever been, I mean, you know, you'll know from Porto and, and your travels is that looking for someone looking for prop, uh, for accommodation over summer in an area that's touristy is a nightmare. I right. mean, a rough rule of thumb is that what you pay monthly during the winter is what people charge weekly in the mm-hmm. summer. So you're talking about a four times rent hike just for summer. And so Leanne Leanne came up with an idea. She said, look, well, let's just leave this house, but let's just travel around. We'll go to um, uh, Gehen. uh, We'll go to Granada. We'll go to Sevilla. We'll go to uh, Madrid. We'll go to, you know, and all the sort of major cities around Spain we've not been to yet. Um, So we went and did that till sort of autumn, September had a really, really great time moving around on Airbnbs every sort of three or four weeks, seeing different cities. And because we were like, particularly here, and we were out in the countryside, and we were still getting by, we're like, this is really nice, just sitting out, just looking at the stars, you can see everyone, well, every star, but it feels like you can see every star as you look up at night. Um, you can get far more for your money out there, and then there's lots of little, they call them campo bars, countryside bars in Spain, I don't, I'm sure you have the same in, uh, in Portugal, where you'll walk in, and you might be the only English person there, and they'll do tapas for 50 cents and then they'll do sort of beers for a euro and and you just you just got so many great characters and then we thought we really fancy this so mm. we just we looked into the areas and then we just looked at the top sort of five villages per population and went to every single one of them and stayed over in some of them some of them just drove through just went and had like a couple of tapas a couple of, a couple of beers or whatever a coffee just felt see what we felt about it. And uh and uh and R, if anyone's listening who knows uh the Aksakia region, Colmenar was the the one number one winner for us and that's where we ended mm. up going. Um in fact it was a stroke of luck when we got there because we got there and we looked down the road and there was a the first thing we looked for is a bar because <laughs> although that's because we want a beer, but also because you're gonna find that's the center obviously in, in most of these right. remote villages. And we saw a Guinness sign outside one of these bars. <laughs> we were like, well, that's a good sign. He we went down there, <laughs> had a beer, spoke to the guys who were from Granada. And they said, oh, yeah, the the woman who owns this is actually English. And she has a ah. letting agency hmm. here. We were like, fantastic. So uh, next day, met her. Two days later, signed our lease in our new village. So uh, it was very wow. serendipitous.
0: Yeah, those, those are amazing signs to be able to get along the way to show that you're going the right direction. And it sounds like that was ultimately a good fit for you. Did you find it to be uh, exactly kind of what you expected and what you were looking for and hoping for? Or did you find that going so deep down the other side of of the expat communities, more on the local side, brought its own challenges that maybe you didn't expect or weren't prepared for?
1: Hmm. Now, that is a good question I've not thought about yet, but you're right. There were the obvious challenges of being in a village, a small village, 6,000 people, of which 5,996 are Spanish. Um, mm. So there is that. There is that downside. The advantage of that is it pushes you to learn Spanish. We got an in-house Spanish teacher who come in and make us do our homework and stuff. And we were like kids. We used to do our homework an hour <laughs> before she came. And we're like, oh, <laughs> shit, we should have done this last week. Um, yeah. But then it got an opportunity to practice our Spanish. Our landlord was Spanish. Our neighbors were Spanish. So that was good. On the slight downside of that is that because there's fewer expats in the area per density, then you one have to go further afield to find more people if you want to find English people, English-speaking people or expats. And secondly, because there's fewer, it's more difficult to forge relationships. Um, If you're meeting sort of 10 new people a week, then odds are once a month, you'll meet someone who you actually quite like and you want to spend time with. But if you're meeting one person a week, then it might be only one person a year you meet and you go, well, actually, I quite like them. And I, th- I think that... I'm not, I hope this doesn't come across as wrong, but a, a lot of people, a lot of expats, particularly someone who's been there for a while, they might have left for different reasons. They're not always, I hate to say this, but not always the happiest or of mm-hmm. people, even though, mm-hmm. you know, they're living a different life. And so that can be a little bit difficult. I think you and I quite sort of, we, we have an outlook of very much like everything's good, glass is half full. And, you know, it's quite difficult when you meet people like that and you have mm. to adapt to that.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And it's not probably something that we've talked about in enough depth on this podcast, but certainly people might move for one reason or another, or perhaps by staying somewhere in a different country, you could say, argue perhaps for too long, uh, maybe in the same place. And I think that can lead to some, you know, long-term frustrations on behalf of some folks. And I mean, I think we've all been there at different points, but hopefully don't get to kind of stuck in that mode without making a change, and that can definitely impact those relationships or a possibility of building a friendship and, and nurturing that over time. So I can imagine, yeah, with with less opportunities to meet people from abroad, that uh, it would you'd have to be a bit more perhaps picky about uh, who you're really building those long term friendships with. Did you find it difficult to be in such a small town as well, as far as maybe? Sounds like you could take your car and go and visit around the country, but I imagine you were some distance from uh, from an airport, for example. Or were you able to do the travel that you wanted to do as well?
1: Yes and no. I mean, it was to get into Malaga. It was about forty five kilometers, and it's about an hour and ten on the bus, and the bus ran like. At Ten o'clock on a Tuesday, and then again came back on a Thursday or something, you know. So it was it was one right. of those sort of country uh, country bus routes. So it meant that you couldn't really go into Malaga for a night out. Um, and we we're both quite living growing up in Manchester. We're both very city people, so mm. that did great a little bit. Um, and I think that is something we definitely got used to, and that helped by the fact that we had two or three. We had about five bars in the in the village, but we had two or three which were really quite, really really quite good. So that was, that was good. In terms of the actual the, the adapting to the life, it's interesting. We've, we found, again, one of the campo bars. We loved this bar. And you'd walk in there and the lights would be off because he didn't want to spend any money. And then if, he, if you asked for a tapas in the winter, he'd put it on top of the fire to cook it. And, <laughs> you know, and it's, it was just like the most rustic place. In fact, the toilet at the back, the men's toilet was one of those which just a hole in the ground with a little bit of ceramic around it. But it just got such a charm about it. And we'd sit there and you'd, you'd go in there and you'd be hard-pressed to spend five euros in an afternoon. Um, and then in the afternoon, you'd have your landlord would come in and say, hey, how are you doing? And then and a man would come in with a box of puppies and then someone else would tie their donkey outside and and then come in. And, you know, and it's like, I sound like I'm making this up, but it was just like experiences like that you're not going to get by going to Weatherspoons in, in the UK or, you know, right. <laughs> a, bar, a bar in <laughs> Chicago. So I think what's really cool is that just the experiences you're going to get and there will be challenges that will take you time to adapt Whatever you choose, if you're going to live in the center of Madrid or Berlin or something, or you're going to live, you know, in in, in the paddy fields of uh, Bali, there's going to be an adaptation, but you just got to roll with it and just take all of these experiences as just the most amazing experiences. You you know, another, another anecdote, another chapter for the book.
0: Yes, <laughs> of which uh, we certainly both have many and uh, hopefully our listeners will, if they don't already as well. But it sounds like everything was kind of coming together. You found a place that you really identified with. People were interested in what you and what you were doing. And you were making those relationships there with locals and some expats as well. You had the in-house or, you know, uh, someone coming to your house to teach Spanish and you were doing your homework and all that and and keeping the businesses and career going. So what was it that made you decide to leave Spain then and, and travel more broadly for a longer term?
1: I think it was just curiosity. We went to a friend's wedding in Koh Samui in uh, Thailand. Um, and so we decided we were going to go four weeks um, and go make a bit of a thing of it. And the so first time we'd ever been, either of us had ever been that way uh, mm. in the East. And so we went to this place and we were just like, we're blown away by how different the world was. How, you know, Koh is quite touristy, but we went went to a couple of other little islands that, you know, it was just like, oh my God, this is just paradise. And is there a shop? No, of course it's not a shop. You know, all this sort of me and we just thought we need more adventure. Have we become a little bit more comfortable living where we are? So our lease was up on the 1st of September, which was our wedding anniversary as well. And we just said, you know what, let's not renew it. Let's just go on adventure. So we packed up on the 1st of September, 2015, I think it would be, maybe 16. And just decided to drive around. In fact, no, actually, you know what? That's completely wrong. I remember what it was. It was the year that the, that the UK voted to leave the EU, mm-hmm. and as people might have guessed, I was gutted. My wife was gutted. We are definitely big, big, big <laughs> European fans, and we were like, "This is awful! Can't believe it's happened." And then that was in the so, the June, and then Trump got in as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, I'm not going into that because people have their own opinions. But we were just like, "Do you know what? Should we try and visit every single country in Europe?" before we leave <laughs> on in January 2021, wasn't it, when we actually left? Yeah, right. 2020 and 31st. Should we try and leave, uh, visit every country? And we're like, yes, let's do it. So there was an inciting moment. So uh, the first place we drove to was uh, to Lisbon, and we were there for about a week. And then we drove onto the Balkans. So we started our journey down in Slovenia, and then went down to Croatia and blah, 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 blah. And so we did... Well, plot twist, <laughs> we didn't do every single country for a reason and for the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll come on mm. to because that's probably what you are asking. But yeah, overall, I mean, up to date, we've done 44 countries, 158 stops, I think, and over 105 Airbnbs, <laughs> and I don't regret a single, single one of them. It is just It's just such an exciting adventure. So if anyone's listening and you're thinking... Should I go travel? Yes, you should. I feel like I've got, I'm on a soapbox now. I'm going to step down. And did I answer your question? I feel like I might have gone on different tangents there.
0: No, no, there's a lot to dive into. I think that's, that's the best part. Um, so there were obviously some different inciting factors or, or aspects that led to your decision to keep it going and start looking even more internationally. And, and you mentioned also outside of the, the Brexit point, you mentioned going to Thailand on this uh, trip related to a, a wedding. And so I'm curious also about then how did you kind of decide where to go? So you, you also wanted to see a lot of the EU. Um, did you go and end up making it back to Asia and travel throughout Southeast Asia as well? Or how did you kind of figure out where it was next and like the overall plan? Because when you have the entire world at your disposal, it can almost be you know, hard to make a decision as to what to do. So be curious to hear about your thoughts.
1: Do you know what? The last thing you've said, we call it the empty car park syndrome. You ever driven into a car park where there's only three cars in there? You never park in the first space you go to. You're always like, oh, maybe I'll go to this one or that one. And you just, like you said, you're almost like you're overwhelmed. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly what you do feel that if, when you can live anywhere, you start to think, where the hell am I going to live? Now, in, to answer your question sort of sequentially, uh, we still did go back to, we went, that was our first year of spending four weeks in the Far East. And then the second year, we spent three months from January, February, March. Someone looked after our dog and we looked, and we did that. Third year, we went and spent uh, four months, which also included India and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. They were incredible. That was that was the last year before the pandemic, so that'd be 2019. So it was almost like we were doing summer in Europe, And then we went back to the UK at Christmas because we had, we had a UK car and it needs to be taxed and stuff. So back to the UK at Mm. Christmas. And then in January, we'd leave our dog with someone and then just disappear off to go and find the sun on the other side Mm. of the world. Um, and then come back when the sun was back in Europe. Um, so that was kind of like the structure in between those times of, of going to um, Asia, we just planned a route. And our route, we started off from saying, well, okay, we go back to the UK at Christmas. So let's come back down through Germany and then go to Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria greece and then come back up through albania and then Mm. we'll work our way back up through albania montenegro serbia um bosnia and herzegovina and then into croatia and we're like all right we'll stay in croatia for a little bit this is obviously for any third party nationals which include unfortunately our us british now you can't do that you can only spend three months in a schengen zone Mm. then you have to leave for three months Uh, but this is back in the days when you could do anything you wanted which was only (laughs) about oh god it was only a year ago um So uh, And so we just kept doing these kind of like concentric circles around Europe. And it was all going really well until Christmas 2009, 2020, I think it was. And we came back from the UK. We went to Copenhagen for New Year. Then we spent February in Poland. Then we went to Lithuania, which was one of our last ones were Lithuania, uh, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova were the last sort of Mm. four. And they were all on the East. So we're like, great, we'll go and do Lithuania. (laughs) And then we're off to Belarus. And then... We were supposed to be in Lithuania for four weeks. We were in there for about four months because of the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that lifted and we were like, things had got a bit tasty with Belarus at that time. It got a little bit worse as well. And then things now currently are a bit weird with um, with Ukraine. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. glad we didn't go any further than that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so instead we just drove down to Croatia and then we spent the next lockdown in Slovenia from sort of September that year through to March the year just gone 2020.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. So yeah, definitely. (laughs) Clearly as, as probably people would expect, uh, the pandemic has, you know, had an impact on your travels and your plans. And, uh, I can imagine that's been a huge change for you. How did you sort of adjust to that? I mean, mentally, emotionally, you'd been having this freedom and just crossing Europe, crossing Asia, uh, seeing the world and then suddenly, um, you know, COVID nineteen sort of stops you in your tracks, literally. So, how did you how did you adjust to that? And and did you think it was just going to be a few weeks or a few months, and get surprised, or did you know kind of straight away that this would put such a. a you know, hamper or hinder your, your travel plans so significantly.
1: To answer your second question, no, I had absolutely no idea it was going to be like it is. Um, we thought, oh, maybe four weeks quarantine, then maybe four weeks, let everyone shake out, and then we're back on the road. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, we all know absolutely that's not the way, and that's probably not going to be the way for quite a few years now. So yes, it had a, had a massive a massive effect. Although I think what I said something at the top of the interview was that if you can be comfortable with both your own company and you, whoever you're living with, assuming you're travelling with someone else or living expatting for someone else, then it doesn't make that much of a difference. I think there's there's little bits like you know you get. When we used to go to the Campo bar in Spain, was nice? Because we'd get out of the house for a Saturday afternoon or something. Whereas, obviously, you couldn't do that anymore. And um, Mm. in Slovenia, it was quite strict. In Lithuania, it was quite strict. Um, Not even dog walking unless, like, dog walking Mm. once a day, but only one person um, kind of thing. So it definitely took its toll. And I think what's, what's interesting is that, and we do talk about this quite a lot, quite openly is that it does, I think it's, this is affect a lot more people's mental health than they're actually letting Mm. on or possibly even realizing. And I think that just by a sudden, particularly if you are a traveler, like we were, and then to go from, you can go anywhere to, to saying you can't even go to the supermarket is such a, such a big change and something that can quite honestly knock you on your ass. Mm-hmm. And and I think it did for us too. We were, we were putting up with it the first few weeks going, oh, it's okay. It's a bit of an adventure, a bit exciting, isn't it? Not being able to go out. And then it got, it very quickly got like, oh, this is rubbish. This is rubbish. And, and I think, yeah, when it got to the, I mean, particularly the second lockdown in we were in Slovenia and uh, we got to Slovenia in September, sort of, let's say September the 1st for argument's sake. And then September the 3rd, they closed all the bars for about four months and we were like this oh my god
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no chance for an out, outdoor beer or uh, you know <laughs> meeting your your local new friends so that that changes things a bit
1: massively massively and i think that we had been to slovenia three or four times before so we did know a couple of people there um who we were able to meet up with fully like whatever within the guidelines but we were able to meet up within their houses but I mean, if you were a traveler and you just turned up in this new city and suddenly you weren't allowed out, I mean, that's got to be really tough, particularly if you're on your own. That's going to mm-hmm. be really tough.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point is that it's it's that much more difficult if you're doing this on your own. And that's what I've seen among people here in Portugal, uh, friends that I've made here through our meetups and different things like that. And just, of course, yeah, talking to other folks that are travelers is just that realization that... It was, you know, all good and all fun when you could go out and meet somebody at the hostels or do this or that and go to the local bar, or go to a pub crawl. But suddenly when you really locked down, I think it's a lot of people realized it's not even travelers, right? Necessarily, it's just people realize that uh, the the home feels a lot smaller when you're there. By yourself all day, or even with somebody else, it can feel a lot smaller <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think you know that's probably changed some of the the renting you know planning or, or purchasing property purchasing plans for people as they've thought about, okay, if we get stuck here again, you know maybe we want two or three bedroom. Instead of that one bedroom, right?
1: Hundred percent, hundred percent. We have been lucky in that most of the places we got stuck locked down in were a three bed, which we just a couple of us. But we, but we obviously work from home, so we tend to try and have separate offices, and that is right. a big key, I think, or at least like I, I mean, we like you have a podcast, so we have a different room to do our podcast studio, a different room to work in. So it feels like you can just leave. But I mean, if it's a one bed apartment and you had to work at your worktop, mm-hmm. and then I don't know, I mean, I think that'll be really tough.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as far as kind of figuring out then your next steps, and obviously now you're, you're in Croatia. So it'd be great just to hear about how you made that happen in the midst of, you know, being locked down in some different countries. And obviously, you've had now uh, Brexit happen. And so as you kind of came out of that and thinking about what to do next in the situation while still maintaining your expat or your travel life, you know, how did that uh, kind of break down? What was the process there? And how did you get to Croatia?
1: Again, I think it's one of those things that you can look at um, Brexit as like the worst thing that happened, or you can look at it and go, well, it's happened. I can't do anything about it. So let's make the best of it. And what's interesting is that because Slovenia is in Schengen, which those those people who are perhaps listening in America who don't know Europe, there's like a number of countries that are Schengen and then you're allowed free freedom of movement if you're from one of those countries. If you're not from one of those countries, you're only allowed three months in six um, now don't take gospel what i'm saying do your research before but generally like no us brits and i are only allowed three months in six in schengen and, and after 90 days we have to go we have to leave mm-hmm. schengen now slovenia we were in slovenia for six months but the countdown started on the first of january for brexit brexit happened on the first january so we had 30 it was like 90 days from them which was like mid-march we had that time we had to get out now then country next door to us is croatia so it made made so much sense 3 hour drive we'd be in croatia so that's where we decided to go so our original plan was to come to croatia for you're allowed another 90 days in here under a tourist visa and then we go back into schengen having hit out and we can go and do another 90 days but we got to croatia and we we're like we love this we've been to a couple of times before but never istria which is the place next to it mm. it's to italy and we got there and we're like this is amazing this is beautiful and they just introduced the digital nomad visa. Now, what that basically is, I'm sure people know what it is listening to your podcast, but for Croatia, it was a 12-month residency plan where you didn't pay any income tax on any income you derived outside of the UK, outside of Croatia, and you could apply for it pretty much straight away. In the, and they weren't too onerous, The well, we didn't think it was too onerous, the actual sort of stipulations to get the visa. So we just mm-hmm. thought, sod it, let's do it. So we were here for 30 days. Uh, yeah, no, sorry, 90 days on a tourist visa and that was in March. And then after about 35 days, we just said, right, let's just apply for the visa. So we did. So we applied for the Nomad visa. We thought we looked at the regulations. We're like, okay, this doesn't sound too bad. We started it. We were like, this is bad. <laughs> this is <laughs> awful. <laughs> didn't understand what they were asking didn't even understand like the forms half the forms were in croatian half were in english we were like this is no good (laughs) so we so we have a little saying my wife and i is like throw some money at the problem and so Mm -hmm. we decided to go and find an agency uh, to come and do all this for us and they quoted us i can't remember exactly what it was it wasn't like thousands, but it wasn't like 200 quid. Um, It was a hefty Mm -hmm. amount, but it was all right. And we were more than willing to pay that not to ever have to look at these things again. They were fabulous. So if anyone's listening who's thinking of going for some kind of residency visa or import your car, which we did in Spain, don't try and do it yourself. Do not, is my (laughs) advice, because it will make you cry and you'll probably end up splitting up with your partner or having ferocious arguments (laughs) about it. So we found this company. They were great. They did it all for us. We went to the police station, picked up our visas, and there we are. So that was May 2020 and, sorry, 2021. And we are now due to leave here in May 2022, which is the we're recording in January. So in about 90 days time.
0: So then I guess it begs a question, what do you have planned next? Is it just to go back to some tourist visas or to try for another digital nomad visa somewhere else or head back to the UK or what's what are your thoughts?
1: I think the one thing we're not doing is going back to the UK. Um, mm. uh, as I said, it's not because we hate the UK. It's just because we've now had this taste of European life. And right. we're like, this is just, this is us, I think, for the foreseeable future. But we have, I mean, the short term, we are going back to the UK. We were due to go back for Christmas this year and we couldn't because of um, the what we we're glad we didn't because Omicron came in and they closed the borders mm. over Christmas. So we would have been really, really stuck. Uh, under the visa, we're only allowed 30 days outside Croatia. So if we'd been 30, if we'd been stuck and been quarantined for another two weeks, we could have lost our residency visa. So that was oh, not wow. good. Yeah, it was quite serious. So um, we ended up, so we ended up postponing. So we are going back to have a Christmas with our mm-hmm. families in May uh, for about four weeks, and then our provisional plan is to head to Portugal, to your neck of the woods, nice. and go for the D seven visa in Portugal. Um, which uh, we're still learning lots about it, and I'm sure that you know when we finish recording, you can uh, you can school <laughs> us a bit more and what's good and bad about it. But that's kind of our provisional plan is to get a Portuguese visa, which will give us essentially will become Schengen citizens again, and that we are able to travel with no Schengen restrictions, is that's our understanding. Of course, if you're listening, then speak to right. David, because he will tell you exactly <laughs> what that means. But that's kind of our provisional plan. So it's kind of weird. We um, we thought we, we didn't know where we were going to go six weeks ago, and now we're pretty sure it's going to be Portugal.
0: Oh, awesome. Was there anything about uh, the opportunity in Portugal, for example, that just made it more clear over the last six weeks? Or was it just just the country itself, obviously the visa is a huge component of that decision, but what, what was it that came together for you in helping to make that decision?
1: There's kind of two or three things, and some of those are what we what weren't good for us. Like, for example, there is a um, a visa, I'm aware there's one in Germany. Obviously, the Croatia's got one, but you can't extend it. And then Greece has got one. I think there's one coming in Montenegro. There's all these kind of like mm-hmm. different ones. But what none of them, they didn't really appeal to us, and they just seemed quite... I don't know. I mean, getting residency in Greece is a four-day drive to the UK, if not maybe five. Mm. It's a lot of, whereas in Portugal, it's probably two days. Mm. So there's, there's the visa part, and the Portuguese visa, in our, in our research, is the most attractive visa to people who are freelancers in Europe. That's our opinion, mm-hmm. um, right. based on our research. In terms of the actual country itself, we lived in Spain and loved it. We wouldn't have left, you know, we would have, we would have gone back to Spain if it had not been for a very difficult tax situation. We have with the properties, they it's mm. difficult mm. because they try and tax you on your properties in the UK, you know, in the capital rather than the income as well. So that mm. was tough. So, but Portugal seems like you know. It's on the peninsula, the Iberian Peninsula. We're planning to live mid-Portugal, a place called Evora. I think it's called mm. Evora. I might be saying it wrong, um, but that's very close to Salamanca, and you can just nip over the border. Uh, similar kind of weather, but then it's just a different experience again. I mean, we're going to have to start again with the language, and uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just I, I think I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think it's half challenge and half that, half sort of. It's half emotional, like this is going to be great, such a great example, uh, great adventure, and half logical in that this is the most logical place to even if we set ourselves as residents here and travel for three mm-hmm. four months of the year, we're still, that seems a good base to have.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people come to a lot of the same conclusions. Good to hear it from your perspective and definitely doesn't always work for everyone. Um, but I think those are, yeah, a lot of the same things that uh, we're having conversations about with our clients as well. And one thing that I didn't ask earlier, but it's kind of been on my mind throughout our conversation is, so you were living more, you know, let's say the expat life there in Spain, and then you became more nomadic in terms of your travels. Then you also had these longer lockdowns followed by Croatia and now probably Portugal coming up. And so you've been running your businesses the whole time in these different scenarios. And so I'm just curious how it changed from being located in one place where you have your setup and everything else to really moving from city to city, country to country, and of course, then moving back into these longer-term situations. I can imagine maybe that has some impact on your motivation around your business or what you're able to achieve or productivity or perhaps not, Um, but it would just be good to hear about how you adjusted to those different scenarios and maybe if you found any pros and cons of, of those different types of lifestyles relative to your business
1: interesting so i think there's a few strands to think about this there's the actual practical logistic of you know we were talking before you hit record that you're setting up your office at the moment and it's all exciting (laughs) because you you know you're setting your gear up and stuff um and i was telling you that i have i have about 40 kilograms of gear including lights microphones there's three microphones just on this desk alone plus Mm. two more upstairs so the actual logistics of moving everything around is a pain in the backside Mm. and it's I think that's one thing I'm not looking forward to jumping around in uh, in summer, which we will be until we find where we want to be, is that I can't set up all my desk and I can't have my monitor on its stand and all that kind of stuff working back to a laptop. So there is a logistical side of it. Um, in terms of the actual sort of, business and client side of it. We, we have addresses in the UK. We don't pretend, you know, if someone asks directly, no, we don't live in the UK. But if, you know, a client comes to us, they go to a website, they see an address, they have a UK phone number using Skype numbers. Mm-hmm. And so they don't know that we're not in the UK. Um, so, from that point of view, that's not an issue uh, for us. There's another aspect in terms of tax. If you, I mean, there's so much online about this whole thing of, mm. of do you pay tax if you're in somewhere for ninety days? But then, if you carry on, move, flip every ninety days, then where <laughs> do you pay tax? Now, I know for Americans, unfortunately, it's there's got no <laughs> choice in it. But for us, if uh, if you don't live in the UK for a certain period of time, you're not eligible for tax there. So there's right. that aspect as well. But I think overall. You, you, the biggest impact is the motivation and i think you're absolutely right if you are if you've got your laptops propped up on some books and you're sitting there at your worktop working on a stool and you're trying to do that for 8 hours a day and then you flip round and you and you start cooking your dinner and then you go and sit 2 meters away from where your where your office is and watch tv or something that can get you down so Flipping around, you tend, you know, we always try and get a couple, You know, like we said before, two or three bedroom places, just so you can have that separation. But also, the other aspect of it is if you're going to a new place and it's exciting, you're like, this mm-hmm. is cool. And then it comes Monday, you have arrived on Sunday, and it comes Monday, you go, well, I don't want to sit there and write these emails. <laughs> I want to go out there and see things. And so it is quite difficult to motivate yourself, mm-hmm. particularly a new place. And I mean, I don't know whether you feel the same, David, but in, when it comes to summer, particularly for us Brits, When the sun comes out, we go to the beer gardens and we sit and drink (laughs) beer. And when it's sunny 360 odd days of the year, it's tough to get motivated sometimes on a Friday afternoon when you know you're going to do something and you can just smell the beer calling you from the the fridge.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, certainly feel that way as well, coming at least more uh, recently from Berlin to Portugal. And even though I'm in Porto, which maybe doesn't have quite as many sunny days as down south, it's still got plenty, including right now, yep, in the middle of January, we've had quite a nice run here. So I, I can feel, you know, I can feel that and, and understand that from your perspective, feel the same on my side. But I also think it's it's interesting to be able to be in one place and to be able to feel that, I don't know, that office or that obviously the place that you live and feel like that's your own as opposed to, you know, feeling like you've got to explore each new place that you go to. It's just, of course, travel is amazing, but it, it, feels like that would just have a bigger impact if you were to be traveling long term and always looking at, you know, where's the next country that we haven't been to to mark off the list or the next city relative to, okay, I've got to, you know, sit down here and work for the next eight hours or whatever. Yeah, as you said, Monday morning's coming and have to get back to work on your setup in, a, in an Airbnb that might not be properly designed for, for co-working or for you know, setting up that workspace. So, yeah, I mean, is it now that you're thinking, of course, with your experience in Croatia uh, more recently, and maybe moving then to Portugal to become a resident in a certain place, as opposed to just nomad all the time? Is that kind of something that you think about longer term, anyway, um, whether Portugal or elsewhere? But just to have that home base where you're spending maybe, perhaps, perhaps more than six months a year. I don't know if that's your plan, but just to have a base as opposed to just always to, you know, be on the move.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's weird because this is exactly what we what we were talking about. My wife and I were talking about over summer, and we were both saying that we are now at the point where we would like a base. So somewhere, we, we got somewhere for six months, like you said, and then we can go traveling so far east for three months and then around Europe for the three months. So definitely, definitely, I think that that's on the cards. But something else which, is, which has happened, which is quite weird, is that we now value work much less than mm. we used to. And I, I know that mm. I know that in the UK, the status is if you've got a brand new BMW, then you're like, oh, look, he's doing well. Mm. And you know, even though it costs you six hundred and fifty pounds a month on a lease. It's mm. like Whereas you move to Europe and I don't know if you've found this, but you move to Europe and no one really gives Flying crap about your car, <laughs> you know your status is totally is defined in a totally different way, and so mm. we found that now we don't really. We just bought a new car. We bought a Skoda, and my wife was devastated because she wanted an Audi. I'm like, does it really matter? And now we've had it a few a few a few months. We're like, actually, it doesn't matter because nobody's you know nobody's going to say, mm. oh wow, look. And so you just your priorities start to change a little bit, and I guess the point where I thought where I think that you no longer think someone says to it brings you up and says, how's things? Are you busy? I always ask, I'm honest now and go, no, not really. (laughs) Whereas (laughs) five, maybe even 10 years ago, I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm busy and important. Yeah. Look at me, how important I am. I've got, and I did have a BMW at 600 pound a month that I couldn't afford and look at me and yeah, I'm flying off to do this. And it's like, now I'm like, no.
0: So (laughs) work
1: just becomes, what's the minimum amount of work we can do to keep the lifestyle we want and also reduce down your costs. So, you know you well I'm, i think i'm flogging a flogging a horse here with the, with my point but <laughs> <laughs> I no it's totally
0: just- yeah I, it, it makes perfect sense and i think that's the way we've adjusted as well or maybe in a sense you know debatably kind of have always been but it, it's become more you know clear by yeah who you surround yourself with and, and the culture and the people around you in that country certainly maybe a bit at odds with the the average american or british mentality right so yeah, completely um I think that's a it's a great point. And I think it's great to be honest about that as well and to lean into those freedoms because in a sense, you know, you've you've spent this time developing that location freedom and business freedom, financial independence as well. And so it's good to be able to enjoy, you know, reaping the rewards of of the hard work that you've put in and the lifestyle design that you've, you know, created over the last uh, handful of years then. So I think that's just a great place to be, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that what, what's really interesting is that people think, oh, millionaires live abroad. And we went, to, we went to, we were speaking to one person who said, I have a millionaire lifestyle, but I'm nowhere near a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Because abroad, you can generally get stuff for much cheaper. Um, when you stop worrying about, do I have the latest phone? And do I have the, you know, have I got Sky TV and, you know, and all the other t- cable channels? Have I got this? Have I got that? And when you start going, you know, sod all that, Simplify, simplify, simplify to the point where if you can live on 1500 euros a month, including your rent, including everything, you have basically achieved financial independence. Because Mm -hmm. between the two of you, if you can't earn 1500 euros online, gigging or something, then there's something seriously wrong with you. Um, (laughs) Well said. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about, it's not about being this amazing, you know, oh, you earn loads of money from X. It's just reduce down, simplify get yourself to 1500 euros a month you're golden
0: yeah and that's that's basically you know then then you can sort of do what you want from there yeah there's there's a lot of beauty in that and i think it's just changing that mentality of the retirement at 65 or whatever the age is to kind of enjoying life as as long as we have it you know um and that's a big part of the four-hour work week like you talked about as well that's the part that really stayed with me is you know this this changing mentality around uh, when to retire and how to do it and and you know how you can enjoy the path and the journey along the way as best as we can especially given such a crazy environment that we're in now and just making the most mm-hmm. of what we have as we come out of this mm-hmm.
1: absolutely well said
0: so with that, I think that probably is a good place for us to wrap up the conversation, but I definitely want to give uh, you a chance to talk a bit more about your podcast, about other projects that you're working on, and definitely think that the audience here, if they like this conversation, should definitely tune in. So please uh, tell us a bit about your your podcast, A Sideways Life, and how our listeners can find out more about you and what you're up to.
1: Cool. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. We've been going about three years now. Only done seriously for about a year now. And uh, you're one of our uh, one of our first guests, and we started to relaunch you, uh, which, wouldn't you were great. And I think that I mean, we we bill ourselves as the honest guide to living and working abroad. And if you look back at some of our episodes, we're on about sixty five now, sixty six. And you look back at some of our episodes, and we talk about exactly how much it costs to live in the um, in the house we live in. And you know, we talk about what it's like to have mental health issues. You know, by working and living abroad. But I think the key thing, which is interesting, is that we started last week a a three-part sequence on the three questions you need to ask in order to move abroad. And most people say, where am I going to live? We talk about the why first. Why do you want to live abroad? And mm. are you more running away from anything? Then we talk about the how, how are you going to make money? And then we talk about the where, and that's usually mm. the, the first question people ask, and we recommend being the last. So if that mm. sort of thing tickles your pickle, then just look for a sideways life We're on pretty much, I think, everything, Spotify, Amazon Music, you name it, Deezer, whatever that is. I've never listened to it, <laughs> but I think we're on that. So uh, yeah, go and find us and have a little listen. And uh, if nothing else, you'll hear the two of us having a couple of gins and tonic and being a bit daft at five o'clock on a thursday
0: sounds good to me we'll definitely recommend it uh definitely recommend the podcast please check it out i'll put all the links in the show notes thank you so much al for your time it's been a pleasure having this conversation hearing about your story and sharing it with our audience look forward to keeping up with you and maybe seeing you here in portugal
1: definitely we'll definitely have a base sometime soon all right thanks mate
0: if you enjoyed today's episode please take a minute and give us a five star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expat empire. If you know anyone who would appreciate this podcast, please tell them about it so we can continue growing the global expat empire community. Keep up to date on new expat empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for our newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at expatempire, so be sure to follow us there. We are currently offering free consulting calls to discuss your moving plans and how expat empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.